0: tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again!
1: How far you gone? LA. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed me. Uh, Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Huh? I card You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> the cult worthy classic a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is episode nine of the cult worthy classic. Now, there are quite a few films that can be considered iconic. Citizen Kane, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, and this film. This independent low budget 1968 horror classic changed everything we know about cinema. Not only did it make a huge impact sociologically, what with its social commentary and political underlines, the most significant thing about this film is the vessel that it was chosen to deliver that message. Now, while the term zombie isn't mentioned once in the film, it is known as the quintessential zombie film. And although there were many films about zombies before it, it was the first to introduce an accepted set of rules of which zombies were expected to follow for decades to come. No longer were zombies undead slaves to a voodoo master. Instead, they were reanimated beings working on the most basic of instincts, to feed. Now the idea that they were more powerful in numbers, and to aim for the head, are now considered the blueprint of nearly all cinematic and video game zombies. Of course, I'm talking about George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, the DIY horror film that utilized Romero's native Pittsburgh for shooting locations and extras. And my guest today knows a little bit about the town, as he is a Pittsburgh native, and has the inside scoop. So to help me deconstruct this cult-worthy classic film is Matt of the Decaying with the Boys podcast. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. I am here with Matt of the Decaying with the Boys podcast, a podcast I've been listening to for a while and I'm just really happy to have him on the show, especially for this movie because... It's got some regional specifics that I'm sure he can answer to because it takes place in his part of the world. Matt, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoy your podcast, so I was excited that you reached out and you wanted me to come on, especially for this movie. So thank you. Absolutely.
2: Your podcast, The King with the Boys, what's it about?
0: So uh, the podcast itself is really like barroom conversations, like the times that you'd always hang around with your friends and you would talk about the things you think you know. Um, so we decided to put mics with it so the things that we really like we love talking about a ton like combat sports uh craft beer uh we'll talk about horror movies from time to time uh, whatever we really want to focus on It's it's been a blast doing that um and, and the name comes actually from it's a band called every time i die they're from buffalo and and the phrase decaying with the boys is actually it's a buffalo slang for drinking with your friends until there's nothing left of you so you decay in the bar stools so um we thought it was pretty fitting and it, it just kind of like stuck too uh my co-host was we were At our little bar and we were drinking, and he decided, like, hey man, if we're gonna do it, this is what
2: we're calling it. And I don't want to call it anything else. So I was like, all right, I don't want any smoke, bro. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. And how I figured out it was a song name was because I was Googling you guys so I could like put links to my website, and it just kept taking me to this band every time I die.
0: If we were in Every Time I Die, I'd probably be the happiest person on the planet. It's my (laughs) favorite band, hands down of all time.
2: Awesome, awesome. So, yeah, we're here to talk about one of the most influential films of all time. And here's the thing is like my show, especially this one, is all about deep diving into cult worthy classic films. I mean, this one's already got a cult. Some consider it to be like one of the very first cult films, depending on what your definition of a cult film is. But you can't deny that this film is probably one of the most influential films of all time, not only just for the horror genre, spreading across all genres, including self-financed independent film. And of course, we're talking about 1968's Night of the Living Dead.
1: Night of the Living Dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures.
2: Night of the living dead. What was your first experience with this film? Like, how old were you?
0: and how did you see it oh man so i was lucky enough to have an older brother who loved to uh help me enter the world of horror way before i should have so i I believe i watched this movie i had to be i definitely wasn't even 10 years old yet when this one was coming across my purview so just you know little little town in the woods in my little house and that he pops it on and he goes and all of a sudden he does the whole i have to go do something else and leaves me Pretty much all by myself to watch it, and I found myself uh, hitting the rewind button on the VHS tape a couple of times, rewatch scenes, and it instantly became one of my favorite movies to watch, even to this day. Um, having to watch it to, again to talk
2: with you about it was fantastic, so it was like, oh, great, another excuse to watch it again. 100%. I I watch this pretty much like every couple of years, usually around Halloween, and I just watched for the first time the Criterion version of this, I bought it um, during their sale, and it's one of my favorite purchases. It's a great, great version, high quality transfer, the clearest it's ever looked. And that is an interesting point to how this film has been seen by so many people. This film has always been in the public domain, because they screwed up with the copyright. They forgot to put a copyright stamp on the film, and they forgot to put it on the reels. So, it was pretty much open for anyone to duplicate, to distribute, to do with what they will. So, for the last, God, 1968. So, what is that, 60 something years, 65, 66 yeah. years? This film has been passed around country to country, company to company, in various states of quality. So, I can honestly say that in my earliest days of seeing this, which I think I was like around 10 or 12, seeing it on either USA Up All Night, or TMC, one of those stations, I can't remember. It's never been a good quality. It's always a little fuzzy, a little grainy, which adds to like the mysteriousness of it and the fear of it. So to finally see it in a really good, sharp copy, man, I caught things I've never caught before, and I can't wait to talk about them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, too, that I like most about the the copyright situation as well is that the original title was Night of the Flesh Eaters. Right. So whenever uh, they tried to move forward with putting it out in i think it's new york scene and they were like no no we gotta change this title up and they change the title and don't put the copyright in and then here we are now in 2022 with this thing anyone can get a hold of it anyone can mess with it and that's why there's a gajillion versions of it and some of them are more fun than others but you
2: really can't beat the original you can't and like we can even go into the fact that like other countries specifically spain and italy have multitudes of unofficial sequels to this film lucio fulci mostly with his zombie films that are based after this they are all unofficial sequels to this they've been marketed differently in the in the recent past but anyone that was trying to make a zombie movie somehow tried to attach it to this film because of the cultural phenomenon that it was and because someone f-ed up and didn't put a copyright stamp
0: <laughs> and it's a happy accent bob ross and i'm glad that
2: it happened <laughs> it's a very happy accident. What is this film's significance in the sense that, you know, you're in Pittsburgh and Romero was a Pittsburgh guy and pretty much the origins of this film start in like the local public TV world of Pittsburgh. Do they have like museums or this or like anything dedicated to him as a filmmaker or how I got its start there? So
0: for a while, they actually had a whole Walking Dead museum that was all for him. Uh, And it really not all for him, but mostly him because it would focus a lot on uh, Night of the Living Dead. And actually, it's ties into uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood because Mr. Romero started off on Mr. Rogers neighborhood. He actually tried to get the I'm missing her name right now, but the female lead on mr rogers neighborhood he wanted to originally cast her as barbara mm-hmm. uh which mr rogers initially shut down he said there's no way you can have her uh and then mr rogers ends up becoming a great fan of night of the living dead and kind of regretted not lending his actress to the role but yeah it's celebrated in the city to the point where we have annual zombie walks uh the Monroeville mall is constantly flooded with tons of george romero memorabilia um you'll never not see a pop-up store where there's at least a t-shirt with george's face on it uh this dvd is in every store <laughs> in every giant eagle <laughs> every sheets it's everywhere that's and, and that's kind of why i like it too because it, it's it's very blue collar it's very gorilla style and i think that really embodies what pittsburgh was and continues to be we're the we're one of the biggest small cities uh on the planet you know big population very diverse everyone trying to get along and just trying to make it happen and that's
2: literally george romero's production team in a nutshell that's amazing you've just convinced me to come to pittsburgh um i mean i want to anyway but that is like exactly something that i would be totally down for Yeah. yeah so the the interesting thing about this film is that not only is it just culturally significant as a zombie film, a horror film, it has been deconstructed sociologically, politically. It's more than just a frightening feature. There's a lot of political undertones to it. You know, Romero, I wouldn't say was exactly an activist in the sense of his filmmaking, but he did want to tell an interesting, relevant story That people would respect and recognize and deconstruct without it just being a a horror film, a gore film. What a perfect vessel to put these messages and these ideas through, you know, especially 1968. Oh, absolutely. And and two,
0: you know, having a a black male lead actor in the movie, um, Romero was quoted as saying, like, it wasn't my goal to have been portrayed by Dwayne, but he just happened to be the best actor. And then, then Dwayne took it on. He just he said, you know what? I see a vehicle here. We, we're we're in turbulent times. Let's try to influence the best way we can. And, and that's why you saw, you know, the, like, you know, not to jump before, but the ending of the movie, how it, it's been picked apart in film schools for decades. I mean, it's it is culturally effective. And it actually, George Romero was quoted to say that he he didn't even think it was going to be a movie about uh socioeconomic status and, and race and the war but here we are. I mean, it, he says you can interpret it any way you want to, but the way it's been interpreted has been so significant that I can't see it any other way.
2: Yeah, agreed. And and the, the interesting thing too about uh Dwayne Jones who plays the lead Ben in the original script and let's before we jump into like the first act, second act, third act descriptions, there were multiple drafts of this film you know pretty much george romero pulled a george lucas and he made this large engrossing epic of an idea which really kind of encompasses the two official sequels dawn of the dead and day of the dead he had this big plan it took him 20 years to do it but he had this big plan and as he was recognizing his budget and his resources He just had to keep whittling down, whittling down, whittling down. I mean, there were parts of this that were originally supposed to be like a comedy, (laughs) you know? And and there are some moments that you kind of get a chuckle, especially with with some of the guys in the house. The original version of Ben was supposed to be kind of like a real blue collar truck driver character that you would kind of like sympathize with. But Dwayne Jones was like a college professor, well-spoken, well-educated, you can see even though he was more of like an amateur actor you can see the intelligence in his face as he's acting he's deconstructing the situation of how to be a a survivalist so to speak in this attack of this zombie horde you see that intelligence in its face and it is so superbly done again as we talk about like the whole racial aspect to it you've got this guy who back in 1968 would probably be the first person killed in a film like this, really taking point and leading the way to have like this, this survival story work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and to see it evolve on screen, to
0: watch how his character develops very quickly uh, from kind of unknown uh individual trying to calm barber down to the de facto leader of the upstairs when he said you know <laughs> i'm the leader i'm the here, boss I'm
2: upstairs out. you're the boss downstairs
0: <laughs> you know as a kid and i grew up in a really small town and watching that you know i wasn't ready for that and it, and it's affected me uh it was as i grew up and i and i i look back at that is really one of the first instances of me uh being able to watch a person of color take on a lead role and it and it shaped how I view all the entertainment I was taking in at such a young age. So, uh, you know, it was it was really cool for me to see that for sure. So like the
2: the way that he plays like the the bait and switch or the Houdini, so to speak, of who the main character is going to be. If you can even call Ben the main character, he's definitely the most heroic. But this is a survival story of people kind of like how all the rest of the the Romero films are there are very unique characters, but it's hard to point out one particular character. I mean, you need someone to kind of drive the story. So as the film starts, you think it's going to be Barbara, played by Judith O'Day. Her and her brother are driving to a cemetery to leave a little wreath of flowers, While they're there, they're kind of having a discussion about, you know, they had this uncle that used to scare them in the cemetery. So you kind of get that there is like this close-knit bond between the two of them. But you also get an idea that there was some family turbulence. You know, interesting way to write that. They don't tell the story. They just kind of give you the idea. He kind of starts spooking, or Johnny does the brother. And as he does, you see a ghoul. They're never referred to as zombies in this film. They call them ghouls. Well, you used to really be scared here.
1: Johnny! You're still afraid. Stop it now! I mean it! They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for
2: you, Barbara!
1: Stop it! You're acting like a child!
2: They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now. You see a ghoul approaching them. And at first they're like, oh, who is this guy? He's probably drunk. Until he attacks them, kills Johnny. You know, Johnny hits his head on the tombstone. Barbara has, does not have the keys to the car. So she gets in releases the brake and rolls down the hill. So from the start of the story, you are assuming that she is the protagonist. She is the heroine because she's the one driving the story forward. She makes her way to this farmhouse and she's in shock right? She really doesn't speak. She has no lines for a while because she's in shock. And that's when Ben shows up, played by Dwayne Jones. And again, such an interesting way to construct the narrative because it's so against type of what you're taught in film school on how to write a screenplay or how to write a story. For a while, you think it's just these two characters.
0: Yeah. And whenever you're you're watching the the relationship between Uh, the the brother and sister at the beginning here you almost forget for a second that it's a horror movie you kind of start to feel like it's evolving into like a like a drama and then when the ghoul shows up and the way Romero gave they gave them like quasi-intelligence and the movement and everything because you like these zombies have a level of intelligence that's more cunning they're not super fast but they can think through things like problem solving and that to me ramped up uh the hopelessness. So whenever Barbara and Ben are together, I'm looking at this like, oh no, there are actually intelligent cannibals outside mm-hmm. and how are they gonna stay because then all the other uh ideas in your brain for zombie movies like how do they stay quiet enough? Why is he saying turn all the lights on? Turn all the lights on You have they're they're thinking they're seeing so uh it, it ramped up quickly. And you're right, you kind of feel like they're isolated in this house for such a long time um that it really adds to um I said the tension between those two mm-hmm. and then the tension within the house. You you almost feel like the house is only two rooms. You just, you forget. It's a huge farmhouse.
2: Which kind of going back to talking about the different versions of the Blu-ray releases and the DVDs and the VHS, this Criterion version I watched was so clear. Man, I saw like a whole other set of stairs that... Ooh. They never go into, they never talk about it. Like they, they really were careful with where they shot the house. But then you watch these clear versions, you're like, oh my gosh, there are other rooms and other stairs that they could have used. But again, they were dealing with like the economy of their production. Like, well, We don't want to go into that room because we have to light it or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and when we talk about the ghouls and zombie films, this is not the first zombie film. This is not the film about reanimated dead. There were many back to the 30s. But the idea of what this Romero zombie, as people call it, is, it's the first time that anyone gave them, like you said, an intelligence. It may be like a baser instinct intelligence. Maybe the lack of synapses in their brain because they're dead keeps them from being as tactile as we see in zombie films today. But in all the zombie films before, it was reanimated corpses that were being led by either magic or voodoo or witchcraft so there was always someone in control romero brings the idea of the horde into play they really have i think this kind of shared intelligence as these ghouls that they know that they are incapable of doing much damage on their own so their power is in numbers
0: yeah and what i found to be fascinating too is most most often when you're seeing a kill scene from zombies inflicted on humans uh you're seeing it not one-on-one because usually in zombie movies you're seeing a one-on-one surprise death and i can't really recall any time that anyone i mean aside from some small hand-to-hand uh there wasn't really an opportunity to see one particular zombie of like notable you know special effects or anything take one one person out they definitely let the horde slow build And then work their magic, as you would say, uh, taking down like hard structures and then working on, you know, separating out the survivors as best they possibly could. And then uh, something that I I like to think of is is the farmhouse itself as its own character. Yeah, the dilapidated nature of the farmhouse and how they try to reinforce it from the inside out. You know, that's that's kind of a callback to culture as well. In America, we were trying to rebuild our patriotism from the inside out. Uh, while everything on the outside was chaos, and then we were trying to fortify ourselves as patriots. This movie is just there's layers and the analytics, and it's it's just beautiful. And that's that's another
2: thing I I love diving into as well. Absolutely, and the fact that like Ben, pretty much fortifies that house all on his own because in that first act, it's really just Ben and Barbara, and Barbara's just on the couch passed out. So he's the one getting lumber boarding up the windows, boarding up the doors. Every time he passes a certain door in the main room, Romero kind of closes in on it as if to say, this has significance further down the road. And it does, because just before one of the attacks, you hear a clutter and you discover that there are a group of survivors in the cellar. Hold it, don't
1: shoot, we're from town. A radio. County, Pennsylvania, the Butler County Sheriff has verified that reports of murder victims being partially eaten by their slayers is true. No further details available at this time. However Why my. you guys been down there? I could use some help up here. That's the, the cellar. cellar, it's the safest place. You mean you didn't hear the racket we were making up here? How were we supposed to know what was going on? Could've been those things for all we knew. That girl was screaming. Sure you must know what a girl's screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody ever needed help. Look, it's kind of hard to hear what's going on from down there. We thought we could hear screams, but... For all we knew, that could have meant those things were in the house afterwards. And you wouldn't come up and help. Well, if there were more the racket sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How are we supposed to know what was going on? That that
0: brings about the best conflict in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is fantastic where you really see Ben solidify himself as a leader of the survivor group. Knowing that someone was able to stay downstairs and let everyone upstairs do the work really played into the villainy of the group downstairs but they were only led by one villain everyone else was trying to survive they didn't know the motives behind their de facto leader Uh, and i'm saying uh, harry correct harry cooper yes thank you i almost called him by his actor's name and i was gonna carl (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so uh harry just really you know brings about 60s racism i mean it's it's all there the despondence the inability to lend a hand uh just writing people off also and also towards barbara as well hysteric woman you're of no help black man you're of no help i have to do this all myself and the way i'm gonna do this myself is is i'm gonna bury myself down in the basement and wait for it all to blow over because all of my other friends will come and save me so, it, oh, man, just beautiful uh, adversity inside the house brewed right there as soon as they met the both, two of the factions, met each other.
2: A hundred percent. And there's also like this weird sense of like manifest destiny with Harry because he is a middle aged, entitled white male. He feels that he has de facto leadership of this group. So the fact that the real leadership and here's the thing about Harry, where I actually can play devil's advocate for him for a second knows he's not as smart as Ben. He finds that out in the first 5 minutes, which only adds to this guy's rage. Yeah, he's getting
0: outclassed by someone that he at first glance thought he was better than from the rip. And like you said, what do what do dumb people do first? They resort to anger because they don't understand, and that's where you see it from the jump. Uh Harry and Ben butt heads, and I also think too there's there's a level of Harry that also wants to prove himself that he is The leader of the house as well and that's that continues to fuel the fire it's almost like two sides that can't come together because of their own thoughts and then coming together would solve a lot of problems as we see throughout the film but you know you're not you're not letting your strengths come together because of your weaknesses
2: and harry has his wife downstairs to helen which is your stereotypical mid-century housewife easily led and and you know just doesn't have a lot of opinions is afraid to say her opinion and then they also have their daughter down there, too. According to them, has been attacked and is either asleep or in a coma. We're not sure. She's not well. And then you've got two young kids in there. When I say young, maybe early 20s, late teens. You've got Tom and you've got Judy. And it's funny because like you would think that Tom would be the most ready for action of this group. I mean, he's, he's young. He's spry. He's yeah. athletically built. But he has no sense of direction, has no sense of like any kind of leadership or action. He's really just kind of finding himself floating around, which person seems more dominant at the time. He bounces back between Ben and Harry. Harry has an idea. He's like, well, maybe Harry's right. We should go downstairs. And then Ben will have an idea. Like, well, actually, yeah, I I could do that for Ben. Let's go do that. That's a good idea. He he he's like a fence sitter which is kind of what leads to his eventual downfall.
0: Right, and then if, if you look at it as well, I think it does play into the 60s uh, father son dynamic as mm-hmm. well. Back then it was the son always looked to the father figure as what they say goes. And so I, you know, he's trying to fall in line with the most dominant male in the house and that's where the that the split happens. Harry's right, then Ben's right. And then the indecisive nature that he can't decide where to be and what to do and how to best fit the motives of the house because of this split between Harry and Ben that ultimately he meets his demise because of that indecisiveness.
2: And the interesting thing to me about where this film takes the second act, because this is a relatively short film, it's barely 90 minutes, and yeah. it doesn't waste any time. A lot of that has to do with the... <laughs> conservative nature of the budget you know like you're not going to make a sprawling epic when you've only got a hundred thousand dollars roughly on this budget which by today's numbers i think is like around nine hundred thousand, is what i read so still you're making yeah. a film for under a million dollars in today's money that has become like this influential cultural icon so it takes a mid-act right. break to kind of give us some exposition that isn't explained in the first part of the film like I can only imagine what it would be like for a 60s audience to see these ghouls appear and to have this whole course of action happen without any explanation as to why. It goes completely against the narrative of films of that time. So that's when they give us a little bit of insight, which I feel like this was a way to do this economically. We hear about all this information that's going on in the outside world, outside of this farmhouse, either on the radio, or through like a news report on the TV in all parts
1: of the wave of murder, which is sweeping the eastern third of the nation is being committed by creatures who feast upon the flesh of their victims. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted those eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. The medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. Look for the name of the rescue station
2: nearest you and make your way to that location as soon as possible. So what we're given, we're given like the following points is that first we just hear about random assassinations. It sounds like there's just a group of mass murderers. There's no supernatural or biological explanation to it. It just seems like people have gone crazy and they started killing other people. And as far as we can tell, it's been going on for a few days. Then we start hearing that there's consumption of human flesh by these characters. As the people in the house begin to know more about what they're dealing with, we finally get to the TV report which has the most information. And we spend like a good 10, 15 minutes in this. So that's A, money that he didn't have to spend on 35mm film to shoot a story. He can shoot it on a newsreel and explain the exposition of the story. What we're given, and we're not given a lot, a satellite has returned from Venus with a lot of radiation. It was a secret mission that no one really knew about, so no one knew that this thing, where it came from, what it was doing, until this news report. And after it's crashed, the recent dead, not the long dead, the recent dead, have begun to reanimate and are attacking people across the countryside. So that's pretty much everything that we are given about the zombie horde.
1: Why are space experts being consulted about an Earth-bound emergency? So far, all the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent Explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite, you recall, started back to Earth, but never got here. That's the space vehicle which orbited Venus and then was purposely destroyed by NASA when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it. Could that radiation be somehow responsible for the wholesale murders we're now suffering?
0: No, uh, that's spot on. And and it's, it's great use, too, of that information. Like you said, it doesn't waste any money and doesn't waste any time. A secret space mission that no Americans knew about, and now it's causing chaos across the entire united states you don't gotta film anything you just gotta talk about it and then of course from there venus space radiation i don't know anything about any of those things so that's more terrifying and then it can reanimate corpses and all of a sudden they're eating flesh it's just a beautiful structure to tell what other movies take in. And- or so to have exposition on and romero does it in a short little butt and it adds to the tension because now you know what they are to a degree but you don't quite understand how it all came together. the characters don't how how it all kind of came together because there's still so much unknown to them we know one thing is factual the dead is reanimated and they are ravenous
2: one of the things i like about this because i mean if you show this to someone who was like maybe a teenager now and they'd never seen it before. They've dealt with enough modern zombie films to kind of have like more intricate reasons why dead come to life. Mostly it's a virus these days because that's like the panic button, even now, especially biological. But we're talking about 1968 where they are only a few years removed from the atomic age and the fear of like atomic warfare and fallout and mutation and all these things that were originally just kind of talked about in sci-fi movies until they almost became real with the Russian missile crisis and the Cuban missile crisis. So yeah, that was still, I'm sure, very strong in the mindset of the people of that time. So it actually probably resonated a lot more than it does today, where if you make a zombie film today, 90% of the time, it's a virus.
0: Yeah, and also too uh and i don't know if you've noticed this as well but in modern zombie movies they don't even say anymore they're just like they're zombies and there's no <laughs> explanation uh army of the dead that w- that's my a stamp number one how they're just like you know what let's just get big burly guys and-, and gals go out there shoot zombies in the head they all know the rules somehow uh they all understand the world's you know collapsing but no one quite understands how it happened and no one's really caring to try to f- to me i think that cheapens some of the storytelling because you, you, that's how you get the layer you know what i mean like it's the mistrust now of the government that also plays into mm-hmm. *Night of the living dead because you're just gonna have a whole space mission where you're exploring the depths of what we don't know and you don't even tell us and now that the only reason why we find out is because we're all dying because of it that that adds so much more to the hopelessness that zombie movies try to have now in modern uh, cinema but they kind of miss the market times because of that that little extra something makes that first bite from a zombie just a little sweeter
2: exactly it's funny that you mentioned that whole idea of how zombie movies play out now especially army of the dead romero does something in this film and he does it in Dawn of the Dead 2. And then he makes up for it in Day of the Dead. My guess is because of budgetary reasons. The military is never involved in this. Who is the one taking out zombies in the first film and mostly in the second? Militias. Organized militias led by either a small town sheriff. In this case, it's the sheriff who's probably my favorite character in the film, just because it's a throwaway character. But he's so important throughout the rest of the film and he has my favorite line where uh, they ask him what what are these creatures? Uh,
1: If I were surrounded by six or eight of these things would I stand a chance with them?
2: Well there's no problem if you had
1: a gun shoot them in the head that's a sure way to kill them if you don't get yourself a club or a torch beat them or burn them they go up pretty easy Well Chief McClellan how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well that's pretty hard to say we don't know how many of them there are we know when we find them we can kill them are they slow moving, Chief?
2: Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. My favorite line of the film. <laughs> that's his explanation. They're all messed up. And, that, and and again, I think that's another,
0: it feeds into the unknown of it, too, because in a small town, who do you look towards? You look towards your local sheriff. You look towards your police officers. You look towards your firefighters. And he's just like, ah, hell if I know. Just uh, shoot him in dead. the head. And uh, just shoot him in the head. And it solves all the problems. Well, okay. So there's a satellite we didn't know about, a space mission we didn't know about. We're just going to shoot something, and then you're telling us if we aim for the head, it's all good. All right, ready, break, go. Burn the bodies, for sure. Don't inhale the smoke. Just burn the bodies.
2: So, yeah, I mean, that's the part that I think is interesting is, like, I really don't think that Romero was trying to put a message in that. I think he was just working within his budgetary constraints of like, we just need a bunch of guys with guns, so we're going to make it a militia. He is actually really speaking to something very relevant in the small-town mindset of, you know, I get it. There's political ideologies now like they were then. They're just amplified in different ways because as the decades go by, I mean, things get different. We consider different things dangerous. We consider different things threatening. And there always is this mindset, you do need a militia of some sort. Of course, that could be exploited, which we see in the second one, as we, we see in Dawn of the Dead, how a militia pretty much turns into this this roaming gang led by Tom Savini and his buddies, but that's a different movie. But in this one, it's like, this militia is really out to do some good, but like their perception of good versus the perception of what we see at the end when we get to Act 3 really says something different, and that's where the cultural relevance comes in.
0: Yeah, and, and too, uh, real quick, too, Tom Savini, another Pittsburgh boy. Yeah, uh, man. <laughs> he's uh, one of the best special effects artists to ever hit, you know, modern cinema. Uh, it's just cool. It, Romero kind of jump-started all this, and, and Savini wanted to be a part of this movie to a degree, but um, he was stopped, I believe, because of wartime. He was in... He, he yeah, during...
2: The, yeah. Th- when this was being made, he was a newsreel cameraman in Vietnam, and... Yeah. That's one of the reasons why his work is so visceral, because he was just recreating what he was seeing and capturing on film. And I remember hearing him on a podcast where he's like, the worst part wasn't seeing it. The worst part was having to go back through the film to edit it and watch the same guy get blown apart multiple times from different angles as I'm putting together this footage. I mean, I could only imagine what that could do to a guy, but he turned it into a career you know, we try to make something good out of it. And look how many people now have learned from him. He really kind of kickstart that whole gore effects.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and two, Pittsburgh celebrates him just as much as they celebrate Romero, uh, especially with some of his modern films as well. Uh, Dust Till Dawn plays heavily over here in Pittsburgh. That's awesome, man.
2: Ben has his plan. They, there's a nearby town called Willard. The truck that he arrived in, he doesn't really know how to operate that well, but Tom does. Yeah. The problem is it's out of gas. They find the keys to the gas pump. So their plan is everyone get in the cellar, lock the doors. Tom and I are going to go get gas for this truck, bring it back, and we're going to get you on the truck and get away. We don't know what we're going to do after that, but at least that's the first step to getting us out of here. But of course, between just the unexpected nature of this zombie horde and the inner politics of this house and the survivalists in this house, things go wrong. You know, Ben tries his best to protect the crew. Tom is a dumb kid. He shoots gas all over the truck while they're handling torches. Judy doesn't want to be without Tom, so she follows Tom out of to the truck. And essentially, the truck gets destroyed with Tom and Judy in it. Ben does his best to try and save him. He knows he can't. He knows he's more valuable to the crew in the house. But God damn it, Harry doesn't want to let him back in.
0: Yeah. Uh- and this is a great spot too, where Harry gets to really lean into, and we call it in pro wrestling dynamics the heel. He's he's definitely leaning into a heel dynamic at that point. But the one thing that blew my mind in, in this in this you know these scenes here is whenever the key's not working for the gas pump, and Ben's like, "Well, I have this shotgun. Let me just see if I can blast <laughs> the lock." He shoots a gas pump. Uh, and it works. So he's a great shot. I I don't know how that happened either, because uh, there's no explanation as to why he's a crack shot with with a rifle. Um, but one of the cool things here, and something that I read about later on, of course, um, after watching this a few times, is that whenever the uh, the truck catches on fire, and of course it explodes, with Harry and Judy, not Harry. I apologize. Uh, the younger gentleman, yeah, Tom and Judy. So they are stuck inside the truck and when the zombies uh the corpses are away and the zombies come over to rip them apart it's actually ham from a local uh butcher that they are able to take a hold of and take big bites out of and it's all covered in hershey's chocolate so you gotta keep it pennsylvania as much as you possibly can smearing it all with uh milk chocolate to keep the the gore factor up um and of course then leading into uh harry leaning on the door Uh, being indifferent, but then ultimately kind of turning it around after that, which is something I'm sure we're going to get into in a second. But um, I think you get to see
2: the peak of Harry's heel, and then you get to see the decline shortly thereafter. Like I said, sometimes I play devil's advocate for Harry because we can't deny that he is not a good person. He's not a good man. He's bad to his wife. He's probably neglectful for his child. But there is a part of him where he's like, I know I am not as smart as Ben. And you can see in that moment, and for an amateur actor, it's really quite a brilliant performance when he's against the door. You see him trying to contemplate versus his baser instincts of racism and despise for this for this guy, but also that self-preservation. He knows that this guy's smarter And I can't figure this out. I can't stay in that cellar forever. I'm gonna let him in. I don't think what he expects is for Ben to come in and proceed to beat the shit out of him when he does. He just takes him to town, and it's one of my
0: one of the favorite parts of the movie I have here because you're 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 building all this up in in your in your brain and in your heart, and you're just like, man, I wish Ben would just finally unload. And as you're like at your peak because Ben almost dies, you find yourself cheering for Ben throughout the movie. And you get to that peak and finally he's like, yeah, thanks for ha- help me hang that door. But guess what? I got a two piece for you. And then just unloads on here. <laughs> and it was great. Great acting. Um, the sound effects for the, the punches were were spot on. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it's uh, it's 60, 60 schlock, but I love the impact sounds. And you're right. The, the acting between those two, no words are spoken between the two of them whenever they're having a very one sided fight. But there's so much emoting and drama that happens between the two that you just can't help but find that be a, a sequence that you go back and watch quite a few times just to watch Harry take his come ins and Ben just give it to him like he deserves.
2: Which, you know, once you take it to that point, there's no go- like going back. Ben has let his baser yeah. instincts take over. So any type of diplomacy that he was hoping for in that household situation is gone. So so essentially, Ben and Barbara are going to be on their own side. Harry's going to go back to the cellar where Helen and his daughter Judy are. However, there's an issue. Judy appears to now be reanimated. You see little flickers of movement. Helen has gone upstairs because, let's face it, Ben shoots Harry. He shoots him with the shotgun or the rifle. He knows that there's no going back to this, so it's better to be without this guy. I don't think that he was going to abandon Helen and Judy, but Harry's got to go. So Harry's dead in the basement, shot. Helen comes upstairs to kind of like say, what are we doing? What are we doing? Ben's like, we got to go. Judy and I are going. But at this point, the horde has already started to find a way into the house. They're breaking through the windows. They're breaking through the boards. It's not long before they're going to be gone. Helen runs downstairs to discover that Judy is eating... Harry's liver is what I'm assuming she's eating them up, which comes to like, actually, to me, the first real child horror scene I've seen in that early of a film. We've seen murderous kids before, but we are seeing an undead, flesh hungry, bloodthirsty child proceed to kill her own mother with a garden trowel. And you get this just amazing sound effect of just the high-pitched shriek get higher and higher and higher. And yeah, you, because of the sensors of the day, I think it was easy to explain undead creatures eating the flesh of people burning in a truck than seeing like a 10-year-old girl kill her mother with a garden trowel after eating her father's liver. So (laughs) it doesn't deliver on the gore, but it does deliver on the tension and the atmosphere of that scene.
0: Uh, And the one thing it does too, because it it doesn't only a a cutback scene where you see the trowel sticking into the chest of of Helen. The thing that I like a lot here, and something that I believe Halloween, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween did, is the utilization of the squelch sound. Mm -hmm. Yep that and that, that beautifully done uh synced up so well and then just the expression on the, the little girl's face while she's she's just plunging the sharpest gardening tool i've ever seen in my life <laughs> <laughs> just into her mother uh it, it's beautifully done and it was exactly what you wanted because you couldn't show a ton um and and you're right they just showed this little girl snacking on an organ so, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to sneak past a whole, you know, garden tool death right mm-hmm. thereafter. Yeah. The squelch sound really sells that death. And then the cutback scene just mwah, chef's kiss.
2: Love it. <laughs> chef's kiss, 100%. As the horde breaks through, Ben realizes, okay, we got to get in the cellar. Harry was kind of right about that. If the truck plan would have worked, we'd be on our way to Willard now, whatever's heading out there. But. With our depleted numbers, the seller's the best option. However, Barbara sees Johnny through the door. Her brother. Remember, she's still in a state of shock, so she's not in the best state of mind. She sees Johnny, and it's like her basic instinct to go to him. Which, of course, he's an undead ghoul now. This character that we expected to be the protagonist, who's spent most of her time in this film on the couch now has like this redemption arc of like, my brother, he's alive. And of course, they just tear her through the door. We all know what's going to happen next. Again, kind of like Mary and Crane getting killed at the end of Act One in Psycho. And if you haven't seen Psycho, spoiler alert, but really, come on. (laughs) What, what What a way to dispose of the character that people already had an emotional investment in right from the start.
0: Oh yeah, and, and not even doing it in a way where you're giving it the satisfaction of like, oh, it's her brother solo doing it. It is an entire horde of these things wrapping her up and pulling her out to where there's no way she can defend mm-hmm. herself and no way that anyone can come get her unless they sacrifice themselves as well. The the ever growing threat just consume her. And that's where the the crumbling of the house, reminiscent of the crumbling of, you know, trust for outside sources and Americana and Just watching the the prized female protagonist get swallowed up by evil is is such a a trope now that that breaks the hearts of uh, moviegoers every
2: year. (laughs) 100%. So Ben's last option, he's like, all right, last man standing. He gets in the cellar and waits it out. Now, this is where. We kind of, like, take a jump cut to, let's say, maybe it's the next day, maybe it's days later. They really give us no explanation of how long it is. Just like, as Harry had alluded earlier, that he could hear the commotion upstairs. I'm guessing that Ben decided it was safe to come upstairs when he stopped hearing the shuffling of the ghouls upstairs, or heard the commotions. So, he... Peeks around, goes upstairs, and you find out that the militia is upstairs and they've taken out the zombies for the most part. The sheriff, who was played by a guy named George Kasana, who was also one of the producers on the film, who had my favorite line about, they're all messed up. He's kind of telling them to throw the corpses on the fire. We're going to head to Willard and clean out Willard in a minute. And someone spies Ben peering through the window. And I'm going to let you kind of finish this off since you're my distinguished guest. So, in this beautiful final act
0: of complete discourse in this movie where there's n- literally no hesitation as what do we do with that shoot it not shoot that thing shoot it it completely devoid of humanity it's an it doesn't i, I can't see what it is one shot right through the forehead end scene end movie fade to black crowd in shock mouth agape <laughs> jaw in
2: chest <laughs> this person that you had um, emotional investment in here's the thing and i've thought about this a lot this movie didn't play wide scale when it was released it really played new york pittsburgh i'm sure big cities it wasn't until it started getting a midnight and cult following that a lot of people got to see this i mean you start seeing the zombie movement of the mid to late 70s so you have to assume that it made it across the shores and made it pretty big It with at least the first five years of its release. I want to know if it played in certain cities where there were still a lot of racial tensions or racial opinions, what would be the perception of someone who maybe this whole time felt uncomfortable watching a African-American male protagonist take charge, become emotionally invested in, only to see them taken down like a dog in the street at the end of this film? It makes me wonder, like, how did that resonate with people who this film might have like changed maybe their perception of survival versus race. I
0: think it's almost like the moviegoers back then could have found themselves in the same shoes as Harry. The, the inability to see through what you've been taught uh, in, in a backwards way of the mistrust of anyone that doesn't look like you to... The only way we're we're going to make any of this work that we're going to come together is if we all band together, regardless of religion, color, background, it doesn't matter only to ultimately have it all still crumble. It just the kaleidoscope of emotions that someone who has some modicum of possible racism in their minds would really have to do some jumping jacks during in this movie i would love if i could have a time machine go back and watch a crowd just i want to see a crowd of just mixed cultural ideas watch this movie in its entirety and, and i just want to Interview all of them. <laughs> I just want to see what they think. Because I can say for myself, watching this in the early 90s as a kid, it changed how I perceived how I consumed entertainment because of where I grew up. It was predominantly white neighborhood. But for me to see that, it changed the way I think of things. And I really, you know, I really find that to be a film that helped me start into understanding other cultures through cinema and then through other forms of entertainment and then just in general. So, you
2: know, thank you, Night of Living Dead, for helping me be a better person, I guess. You know? <laughs> Which sounds crazy to say that, but it makes perfect sense to me because I'm in the exact same boat, you know? The film could have easily just faded to black right then and there. But it does something different. Over the credit sequence, it shows what are essentially crime scene photos. It's still photographs of Ben with a hole in his head after being shot, then being dragged out of the house by the militia, thrown on a pyre of bodies to be burned, and then just showing like different shots of the militia in various states of action as if, like, they did this to one town, now they're going to go on to the next. Now, again, I don't know if it's Romero's point to drive this home. Many a film scholar, many a reviewer, many a social, political scientist, researcher, whatever, have tried to make the comparison of like when people first started seeing the crime scene photos of Martin Luther King or Malcolm X having been shot. I mean, you're seeing these political figures, these African-American figures, on the front page of the news, you see the bullet hole. You see the blood. Again, I don't know if Romero if that was his intention to drive the point home, but there's no denying that there is like a parallel between what we saw in the papers of the day to these these really simplistic crime scene photos at the end of this film. That slow kind of like drumbeat score goes over the closing credit. What do you think? I th- I think it's I think it plays spot on to that. I
0: mean, you're trying to play with the times. Um, you're trying to stay relevant with the current societal arcs, and I think that does play along very well. And if we fast forward to the Tom Savini vehicle, where he, you know, he remade this film, he ramped up racial undertones mm-hmm. in the remake uh, to really hammer home just how how important it is to tell a story like that over some kind of vehicle like the absence of humanity through a zombie horde and then changing the ending just slightly in the 1990 film to turn ben into a zombie but then only to still have like i would have shot him anyway Mm -hmm. kind of line movie it so in 1968 he was saying things without knowing it and i think he gave tom savini the keys to drive that corvette 110 miles an hour down the pittsburgh parkway with it <laughs> and it made that remake just as important as the 68 uh original so yeah i think it really it really played into the tones of modern times and it makes you think you have to take a look at yourself when you're watching things like this because it's not just blood and guts. Even though that's cool, and I love blood and guts, I also like it when it makes me think about myself and, and the things that I think, do, say, and feel.
2: For both of our listeners, go check out the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead directed by Tom Zavini. It is a shame that it got lost in a wash of mid-80s to early-90s direct-to-video B-movies. It does have a lot to say, and it is a work of labor and love from a guy that knew how to handle the source material. I mean, this is the guy that pretty much created the gore effects for any relevant zombie or horror film of the 70s and 80s. Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, The Prowler, Friday the 13th, the list goes on and on and on. You wouldn't have those films without this guy, without Tom Savini. And so, this love letter to Romero, which Romero backed it 100%, this 1990 remake is underseen, underappreciated. I'll definitely talk about it on a future episode of my show, but seek it out. It's worth a watch, especially if you're a fan of this film, you know, this original. It, it's a remake that doesn't try to fix anything. It it's If anything, it it's trying just to find a new generation of Romero fans, is the way I look at it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then... You know, beyond that too, the Diary of the Dead was one of the first, you know, uh cohesive found footage zombie movies that I can remember watching in the mid two thousands. And that was also something that was heavily endorsed by George Romero. I mean, everything has that became his calling card. Everything had some kind of undertone and message to it and it's important, you know? Um not everything is saw.
2: <laughs> not everything is saw, not everything is final destination. Not everything is a jump scare. And I talked about this with, who did I talk about this with? I talked about this with Shane of the Shane and I podcast. This film, I would much rather see a film that keeps you in a constant state of dread than a film that just tries to get you with jump scares. And this film does it superbly from the second that first ghoul shows up stumbling through the cemetery. Absolutely. It holds to you.
0: It's haunting. It's hopelessness. It's, it's zombie 101, and and just like in cooking, if you're going to do something 101, you got to do it perfect. And I believe that this film, even though it's a shoestring budget, it was done perfectly.
2: And my, it's another podcast to talk about all of the times that George Romero reinvented himself with all of his different films. We're just here to talk about this one. So I got a couple of questions for you before we wrap this thing up. Question number one, fast zombie or Romero zombie? What's your preference?
0: I I like a fast zombie only because I believe uh, fast zombies drive survival instincts to be snapshots very quick, where you truly get to see the human nature play out.
2: There's there's something now like we have this like quick twitch reaction in the last twenty years, like especially our generation because everything happens so fast in daily life, whether it's information that we get through social media or the news or you know when we play a video game it's all hand-eye coordination things that in 1968 they didn't really have a generation built on this idea of hand-eye coordination you know i'm a purist i say romero zombie is my personal preference only because i think there's better films made about the romero zombie however if this was a real life zombie situation. I think that I would perform better in a fast zombie situation based on all my training from video games and and films. But yeah, I've, I've actually deconstructed that in my mind several times because I got time to do that sometimes. Now, I usually ask guests, and I'm going to ask you too, but normally, when I ask them for a pairing, a double feature, if you were to show this film with another film, what would it be? I'm going to go ahead and go first because... I can't watch this film without watching Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead right after it. So I'm going to go ahead and say that because that's just how my brain works. So that can be your choice, too. But if you were to pair this with another film that wasn't those three, do you have one that you might throw in with it?
0: Absolutely. So uh, I actually like to have movie nights here at my house. I have a big projector screen I can set up in the driveway and people come over and hang out one of my favorite things to do is to play night of the living dead and then right after that i have to play the reanimator
1: yeah because
0: all the score you didn't get in night of the living dead you sure as hell get it in the reanimator and reanimator is a fantastic dive into the world of the thin line between genius and insanity uh mental health undertones throughout the whole thing another thinking man's movie despite the fact that it gets schlocky at times, but I love HP Lovecraft and I really love reanimator.
2: I love Stuart Gordon. I love Jeffrey Combs. And I tell you, man, I can watch the reanimated cat scene over and over and over again. I think it is an underspoken triumph of cinema, <laughs> the reanimated cat scene, oh, reanimator. Yeah. So yeah, a hundred percent. That's a good, great 100. choice. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. 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 All right, man. So do you uh, want to plug anything while you're here? I mean, everyone listens to podcasts wherever they listen to podcasts but what else you got going on i love that you guys work your local breweries and just beer into your podcast anyone you want to call out
0: oh yeah so definitely want to talk about arboretum trail uh arboretum trail is taking over a big space in pittsburgh and they actually have a uh like a gofundme right now and it's worth every penny to watch this guy succeed uh, ben stefan that guy started just like how we did on the stove, making five-gallon batches, and now he's about to move into like a 3,000-square-foot brew space where he's going to go from can-only distribution to making, I think it's I think it's somewhere around like 7 or 14 barrels, which is uh, usually like 21 commercial kegs at any given time. It's a beautiful tap room uh i love that place used to help out it used to be called couch brewing used to help them out every once in a while but yeah arboreum chill and they chose us uh to be in their incubator program so we're gonna train under them and learn more about the craft and hopefully at some point we can start our own thing as well which has all been the goal
2: awesome man thank you so much and you can find decaying with the boys on all platforms just like you can find my show please check us out. rate review. I can't thank you enough, Matt, for being on the show today and we'll definitely do this again. We're due for more crossover episodes for sure.
0: Yeah, I would love that, man. And also too, you're always welcome to the judgitorium if you want to talk about you know pro wrestling, some beer and maybe some more horror movies. Beer and horror
2: movies. I gotcha. I'm 5'6", I'm and I've never been into wrestling, so you might be able to teach me a few things. So, once again, this was the Cult Classic. I'm Antonio. Matt, thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you later.
0: Uh, yeah, for sure, buddy. Thank you again for having me on. I had so much fun. Thank you. All
2: right. Good night, everyone.